we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, for this message entitled, Standing Firm Together. Today we'll conclude this chapter, which has had as its theme the call to stand firm in the midst of external pressure that's coming from the world and internal conflict that's from within the church. Up to this point, as we've been studying this chapter in the last four messages, Paul has spoken in very individualistic terms. Each believer will stand before Christ on their own and give an account for their life. And so it is quite appropriate that the call to stand firm is given to us as individuals. But as we come to the end of this section, we're reminded that the call to stand firm in the Lord is done in the context of a local church. And that's something that we do together. So in this conclusion of the chapter, I'd like to read the whole chapter just to set in our minds what it is that we're supposed to be doing together. So follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies 
of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The first English Bible that was printed with the chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible in 1560, just shy of 500 years ago. The section headings of the Bibles that we all have in front of us are much newer than that, and while they're often helpful, sometimes the section divisions are not quite accurate to the flow of thought. When you study the Bible, it's important not to allow those verse and chapter divisions to determine your interpretation of what goes together. And so the context, as we talked about interpretation, context is everything. The context is not the verses or the chapter divisions. The context is the content that surrounds a passage. Some of our Bibles have a major division before chapter 4, verse 1, and others it comes after. Those that include chapter 4, verse 1 with chapter 3 are more accurate to Paul's flow of thought here. The word, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, signals the final conclusion of what Paul has been saying in chapter 3. And so, in this concluding statement, Paul really sets the tone that reflects back to everything that he's said in chapter 3. He's not speaking harshly. He's not addressing adversaries or opponents. He's not really correcting problems. Unlike the Galatian church or the letter to the Galatians, he's not upset at the Philippian church, nor is he shaking his head at them in dismay like he may have been doing with the Corinthian church. No, his disposition in this letter is one of love and affirmation and gracious exhortation. And so the way that he speaks to them in this verse is among really the most personally intimate things that Paul writes in Scripture inspired by the Spirit. Notice that he refers to them in verse 1 of chapter 4, my beloved brethren. And then at the end of the verse, he says again, my beloved. Paul loves the Philippian church. They have shown him more support and more devotion than any other church, as we'll see when we get to the end of chapter 4. But he doesn't love them because of how they make him feel or because of what he gets out of the relationship. He loves them because they share his heart for the gospel of Christ. They are of one heart and one mind in their commitment to see the gospel proclaimed to the nations. That's why they were so committed to supporting Paul financially. And so their love for Christ drew Paul's heart in love for them. And so, in loving them, he says next, there in chapter 4, verse 1, whom I long to see. As we've said, Paul has been imprisoned for about three years, and it's been about four years since Paul last visited Philippi on his way back to Jerusalem where he was arrested. 
So he's eager to see them again. And then finally, he refers to them as his joy and his crown. And just thinking about the Philippians brings a a smile to Paul's face. I mean, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So the church brought delight to Paul's heart as he remembered their work for the gospel. And then to call them his crown means that they are a reward for him, that, that they are the fruit of his ministry. Through, through all of the difficulties, all of the suffering that Paul experiences, when he thinks of the Philippian church, he thinks, that's why I do this. That's the fruit that I get to enjoy by God's grace. It makes everything worth it. His confidence in the church reveals that the troubles that existed in the church, however significant they were, weren't really all that much of a concern for Paul. His instructions and his admonitions are needed, but he didn't write to them as a problem solver. He wrote to them with reminders and encouragements, trusting that they would be able to take the truth and apply it to the details of their problems. As we'll see next week, when Paul gets the most specific about an issue, two women whom he names who are in conflict, even then he doesn't add any instruction other than just follow what I've told you, be of one mind. Meaning he trusts that they'll be able with the help of the Spirit and with others to take his instructions and, and work through the conflict. Well, it's with that disposition toward the Philippians that he concludes all of chapter 3 with a command in this way, the way I've explained up to this point, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And so in giving that command, Paul knows that while individuals must stand firm, their efforts will fail. Your efforts and my efforts will fail if we don't stand together. 2 Samuel 11 recounts the tragic uh, event of David murdering Uriah the Hittite. He was covering up for his sin that he committed when he used his power to sleep with Bathsheba. It It doesn't say it in the text in 2 Samuel 11, but we learn from other passages that Uriah was actually one of David's mighty men. He was one of David's top 30 most fierce warriors in battle. But despite his fierceness, when his fellow soldiers retreated from the battle line and left Uriah on his own, he was susceptible to attack and he was killed. And so it is with us. No matter how spiritually strong and mature we might think we are, when we isolate ourselves physically or relationally, we are prone to attacks and influences and deception. This is why God placed us in the body of Christ. Christ unites us not only to himself, but to one another, so that we would stand firm together. Now we're going to walk through verses 17 to 21 under two headings. The first heading is the call to stand firm together. The call to stand firm together. And the second heading is reasons to stand firm together. Reasons to stand firm together. Consider the call to stand firm together there in verse 17. Look at it again. 
Brethren, he says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. On the surface, it might sound like this is a command to individuals, but it's not immediately obvious that he's calling us to stand firm together. But, but really, once you scratch the surface, it becomes clear that this call is a call to stand firm together. When he says there, join in following my example, or in the ESV, join in imitating me, the phrase literally means become a fellow imitator of me. Become a fellow imitator of me. Fellow imitators uh, translates a word that Paul seems to have coined. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament, nor is it found in any other ancient Greek document that's been found. And if indeed what, if indeed he coined it, what he did was he took the word for imitator and he added to it a prefix that means together with or fellow, hence fellow imitator. And so the command then is not become an imitator of Paul. The command is join together in imitating Paul. So when two or three or more believers imitate Paul, they are now fellow imitators. That's the first evidence that Paul is commanding them to stand firm together. The second evidence is what he says in the second half of the verse. Notice, he says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul presents himself as a model, as an example, as a template. But he understands that we need more than a template. We need a living, breathing example of what it looks like to pursue Christ in the nitty-gritty details of life. How do you press on in knowing Christ in the context of a home, in the context of a school, in the context of a workplace, in the context of a community, and in the church? So Paul urges them to look around and pay careful attention to those who are living consistently with the pattern that Paul has both taught and provided for them during his visits. This is the kind of observation that requires relationships where we converse, we spend time together, and we do ministries and activities together. And so you can see that when Paul urges us to stand firm in chapter 4, verse 1, and verse 17, he's calling us to stand firm together. Now consider these benefits of banding together and observing the lives of others who imitate Paul. We learn from each other, not only by instruction and by giving counsel, but also by observing how other people lose their lives for Christ, how they live in the power of Christ, and how they grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in the seasons of joy and blessing, as well as the seasons of trials and sorrow. And by observation, we can see how mature believers re respond to losing their job, or losing their loved one or losing their health. We see how believers rejoice and respond to the gift of life, or promotion, or financial blessing. We can listen and take note of where people place their trust when life takes a sharp turn in an undesirable direction. We hear and we observe how genuine followers of Christ respond when they are confronted by sin. Observing other believers not only teaches us, but it also encourages and strengthens us. 
Uh, When we see other believers strengthened by grace to endure hardship, it reminds us that if God's grace can strengthen them, it can strengthen us in our hardships as well. When we see others living faithfully for Christ, regardless of the consequences that come into their life, it strengthens our resolve to be faithful as well. When we hear the truths that have comforted other believers in their sorrows and griefs, we are comforted as well. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls where there is none other to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. What a gift it is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of our church, the Savior of our souls, saved us into the body of Christ where we are not alone. We are not left to ourselves to figure out how to live the Christian life and fight battles and endure storms. The reality is the most dangerous position a Christian can be is on their own disconnected from a biblical church where they have no models to observe or no shepherds to provide care, no community to support them. Rather, the position of strength for a Christian is to be part of a local church where the Word of God is proclaimed publicly and privately. And Christ-like love characterizes relationships and those struggling in trials find help and encouragement. And those who struggle with sin find hope and counsel. Standing firm together is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. When Paul, excuse me, when Jesus sent out the disciples, the 70, to, to do the work of proclaiming the kingdom, he sent them out in pairs, not alone. When the church was born in Acts 2, it was born in the context of believers in Christ, disciples of Christ, who were already gathered together. And then as the church grew and spread, it's not just that people became Christians. But in every city, churches were born at the same time. So people didn't just convert to Christianity as an isolated event. They became part of God's family where they banded together with others. Standing firm together is how we overcome sin. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't overcome sin on your own. Standing firm together is also how we live like Christ. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day growing near. So as we gather together, both in corporate services like this and in smaller groups, we encourage one another to live and to to live out the good works that God has prepared for us. There are dozens and dozens of one another commands in the New Testament, which if we followed them, would help us to stand firm together. Consider this small sampling. In Romans, we're commanded to be devoted to one another and give preference to one another. 
In Galatians, we're told to serve one another. In Ephesians, we're told to show tolerance for one another in love, speak truth, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. In Colossians, we're told to admonish one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs. In 1 Thessalonians, we're to comfort, we're to encourage and to build up one another. And there are many more. Almost every New Testament letter has commands that can only be obeyed in the context of relationship with other believers. So the reality is that a Christian cannot be a faithful Christian without being an active and committed member of a local church in which the one another commands are lived out. In fact, it's been well noted that the Bible has no conception of a Christian who is not a member of a church. This is why we practice church membership. You know, sometimes people struggle with the idea because the Bible doesn't say thou must be a member of a local church. But no one ever had to tell a fish to swim in water. The Bible assumes that a Christian is part of a local church. And one who isn't is a fish out of water. So church membership, as we and many other churches practice it, is how we apply the many commands in Scripture as to how we should relate with one another. The need to stand firm together is why we have men's and women's ministries and groups for students and singles and especially small groups in homes that allow us to spend more time together and build relationships in a context where we're discussing how the Word of God applies to the details of our lives. But we can't limit ourselves to those formal ministries of the church. We have to cultivate relationships where we're a part of each other's lives outside of the formal church activities. And I would say this, at Hope Bible Church, that happens a lot. It's an encouragement to my soul to know that many of you in you know, different groups and different gatherings spend time together and serve each other and encourage and counsel each other. And so this is really a call for us to excel still more in standing firm together. But for those of you who are isolated, who you don't engage in the formal ministries and you don't have any fellowship outside of those formal ministries, I would urge you, if you are going to stand firm in Christ, you must connect yourself to others in the church. We need you as much as you need us. Because Christ has given us all gifts to serve one another. So don't withhold yourself from the body. Get connected. Be purposeful to get to know others. Find a ministry to serve in. Join a small group. Ask someone out for lunch. And stand firm together. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to our next heading. Reasons to stand firm together. Reasons to stand firm together. There in verses 18 to 21, Paul gives two reasons to stand firm together. One negative and one positive. Look at the first reason in verses 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The word for there in verse 18 means because. It's giving a reason or an explanation as to why we should stand firm together. And so we should stand firm together, Paul says, because 
there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is not a reference to self-identified unbelievers. Paul is strong whenever he writes about unbelievers. He's very plain spoken about the reality of their sinful nature, that they are hostile to God. He really does not get emotional about it at all. But here, he weeps over the fact that there are those who name the name of Christ and yet they walk as enemies of the cross. These are the many that Jesus referred to when he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? He says, I will declare to them on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus says that there are many who say they follow Christ, but they are really enemies of Christ. They are, in his words, lawless. May no one here be accounted among that many. Well, there are four things that Paul says characterize those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Consider, first of all, their end. He says in verse 19, their end is destruction. This is the same end as those who walk on the broad road that leads to destruction, Matthew 7, 13. Destruction refers to the dissolution of someone's life to come to the end and find that nothing from this life carries on. It all dissolves into nothing. All success and all wealth, all possessions and relationships are cut off in a moment with no hope for restoration. The Bible teaches that those who die apart from Christ are cast into hell. It's a place of torment where they are held until the day of final judgment. But then that at the judgment seat of Christ, that final day, Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds, And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Those who claim to follow Christ and yet live as enemies of the cross are destined for eternal destruction. Second, Paul says here that their God is their appetite, or more literally, their belly. To identify their God as their belly is to identify their authority, their driving impulse. He identifies really their value system, their priorities, and their purpose in life. And what is it? It's their belly. And if we interpret that literally, it could be he's referring to those who are really uh, uh, emphasizing the strict dietary laws. But it seems more likely that he's using belly as a pithy word to refer figuratively to their appetite, or more broadly, their fleshly desires. In other words, instead of living for Christ, they're living for themselves and whatever cravings they have. One who lives for themselves is an enemy of the cross of Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him and who died, who died and rose again on their behalf. So if we claim to follow Christ, we claim that 
he died for us, and we continue to live for ourselves, we make ourselves his enemy because we are opposing the reason for which he died. Now, a third characteristic is that their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. This identifies what they take pride in, what they place their confidence in. Earlier in chapter 3, as we saw in verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus, true believers do. But these people that Paul weeps over, they profess Christ, but they glory in their shame. That is to say, they take pride in the things that they should be ashamed about. Now, for some, perhaps that means that they take pride in the fact that they can sin freely because Christ has covered all of their sins, so it doesn't matter. Others, perhaps, boast in their accomplishments as something fantastic, which others would see to be quite meager, embarrassingly so. Still others might boast in their righteousness in a pharisaical manner, and they should be ashamed of being legalists and Pharisees. Whatever the case, what they boast about or place their confidence in should really be things they are ashamed of, not things they're proud of. The fourth characteristic that he gives is that they set their minds on earthly things. Their thinking, he says, is on the earth. And this is to say that their perspective on life ignores the spiritual realm and it completely sets aside eternity. They are myopically focused on the here and now. With that mindset, it makes sense why they would be making their God their desires and why they would take pride in shameful things. But suffice it to say that their thinking, their mind is not at all on glorifying God as their highest aim. They're not driven by the priorities of Christ. They're not seeking the kingdom of God or the good of God's people. They are focused on this earth. That's what characterizes the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the existence of these professing Christians who are enemies of the cross should drive us to stand firm together. Why? Because we might be jointed, uh, tempted to join them. While claiming to be on the broad road, or excuse me, on the narrow road, they are actually on the wide road to destruction. And our sinful hearts are drawn to those who look like they can have the best of both worlds. A ticket to heaven in their back pocket and a wristband that gets, gets them access to the pleasures of this life. And because there are many of them, there's peer pressure. The fear of man in us creates angst when we're the only ones standing for truth and righteousness. So when we see person after person after person, whether celebrities or people around us, naming the name of Christ and yet living like the world, we start to get that feeling, maybe I'm taking this too seriously. Maybe I can enjoy the things the world has to offer. I mean, these people seem to have more joy than I do. Whatever it is, we are tempted to move away from Christ and toward the world. And so we must stand firm together. We must encourage each other to stay on course and to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. 
We need to model for each other how to live for Christ in all of the seasons and challenges of life. But there is a second reason that he gives as to why we should stand firm together. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In contrast to those whose end is destruction, our home, our citizenship is in heaven. This is to say that our homeland, the place of our belonging, is heaven. In Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of the patriarchs, the author writes, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. But as it is, he says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, beloved, the same is true for us. Our city, our citizenship, our homeland is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens in this earth. And even heaven, by the way, is a temporary homeland. Our final resting place, if you want to call it that, is the new earth where we will dwell with God forever in worship and service. Paul says that it's from this heavenly home that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come and take us to Himself. Again, the enemies of the cross of Christ, who is their God? It's their belly. Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again for those whom He has saved and redeemed and take us to be with Him forever. We may have been waiting for 2,000 years, but because a thousand years is as one day to the Lord, He's only been waiting a couple days. And so He is coming soon. And when He comes, did you see what He would do? Look again at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. When Christ returns, we will receive our glorified bodies. This is the prize that we saw from verse 14. Remember that Scripture teaches that when believers die, our souls are immediately found in the presence of Christ, even while our body goes to the grave. But upon His return, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, the dead in Christ will rise first, so those who've died in Christ will receive their glorified bodies first, and then we who are alive and who remain will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't give a lot of specifics as to the nature of these new bodies that we will receive that are like Christ's body, but by saying that our bodies will be like His glorified body, we have some clues. We know, for example, that we will eat and drink just like Jesus did after the resurrection. I imagine there will be all kinds of food in heaven and on the new earth. But at the very least, there will also be the tree of life in the new Jerusalem from which the nations will eat. And because there won't be any hunger, eating won't be for sustenance. It'll be for pure joy and, and pleasure and celebration. 
Jesus' glorified body still bore the marks of his crucifixion, you remember. So it's possible that there will be some aspects of our bodies that remain the same, but whatever does remain the same will in no way hinder us or cause us shame or disappointment. God, Jesus' glorified body also had the ability to, to walk through walls and to travel distances without the normal means of travel that we're familiar with today. And so some speculate that that'll be true of us, that we'll be able to appear and disappear in different places. Well, that's possible. It's also possible that was just unique to Christ because after all, he is God. You know, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun because the glory of God will illuminate everything which seems to indicate that we won't sleep. And that has vast implications for how our bodies will work differently than they work right now. Our glorified bodies will be fit for heaven and it will be everlasting. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. With this, we can conclude that there would be no sickness, no disease, no injuries, no aging. All the vestiges of sin will be completely removed from our bodies. And our bodies will no longer limit our ability to worship and serve God. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He asked the disciples to stay awake and pray on this momentous night. And he kept going back to them and finding them asleep. And he said to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That will never happen again in our glorified bodies. Now, how will Jesus transform our bodies to be like his? Look again at verse 21 at the end there. He says, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Father has given the Lord Jesus Christ authority over all things, and he will direct his sovereign authority and divine power toward you such that your body will be transformed because there is no law or power that can resist his will. Think about this all the molecules and atoms that make up your body, whether they are together when Christ returns or whether they've scattered after your death, they will all bow in submission to Christ and come back together to form your glorified body. So it doesn't matter how you die. It doesn't matter what happens to your body after you die. Christ will command your body to, be, to reincorporate and conform to itself to His glorious body. To know this, to have this to look forward to, gives us a reason to stand firm together. We can stand alone and likely perish. Or we can stand firm together and endure to the end. When we are overwhelmed by the trials of life that we can't see what's ahead, others can come around us to remind us of eternity and what's going to come with passages like Romans 8.28, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul makes a robust case for the resurrection of Christ, and therefore, as a result of his resurrection, the fact that we will be raised with new bodies, here's his conclusion to that truth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, my beloved, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. As Paul strengthened the Corinthians with the reality of our glorious future, so we can strengthen and encourage one another. Beloved church, let us join in following Paul's example of following Christ, of knowing Christ, of losing everything for Christ, of living in the power of Christ, and persevering to the very end. When you find yourself weak and struggling, observe and attach yourself to those who can help you walk this life in Christ, who can model faithfulness in front of you. Pay close attention to those who are living exemplary lives, not perfect lives, exemplary lives, and imitate them. And may we all be and become those kind of people that others can look to and learn from. Let us stand firm together, beloved. Let us stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, whenever we look at your word, it seems so inadequate to consider these things in, in our hearts. There's so much more that could be said. This truth is profound. This truth, if we were to embed it in our souls, would dramatically alter the course of our lives. Help us, O Lord, to be your people, to faithfully follow after Christ. Help us, Father, to stand firm, to know Christ, and to love Christ, to not let anything get in the way of living for Christ. And Lord, let us do that together. Let us encourage one another. Let us strengthen each other. Let us call each other to increasing faithfulness. And Lord, when we find ourselves in a pattern trapped in sin, help us to be humble, to receive admonition, or if we see others trapped in sin, Lord, help us to be faithful to proclaim truth in love and call them to repentance. Lord, as we do that even now, would you help our hearts to be drawn toward faithfulness to Christ? In his name I pray. Amen.